0: This is the Meiji at 150 podcast, I'm Tristan Grunow. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Ellen Nakamura, senior lecturer in Japanese and history at the University of Auckland. Dr. Nakamura is the author of Practical Pursuits, Takano Cho'e, Takahashi Keisaku and Western Medicine in 19th Century Japan, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2005, as well as more recently, Working the Seabold Network, Kusumoto Ine and Western Learning in 19th Century Japan published in HAPA, Japan in 2017. Dr. Nakamoto, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: In your research, you've looked at Western medical practice in Japan in the 19th century, and more recently, you gave this presentation on battlefield medicine during the Boshin War. So can we start by talking about that and then go more broadly into your work on Western medical practice?
1: Certainly. The paper I gave most recently was about doctors who were treating people in the Boshin war. And uh, this is very new work for me, but I also found it really interesting. And came out of looking at a diary of a doctor who was involved in the campaign in Tohoku in the Bosing War. And uh, he wrote in great detail about uh, his experiences there. A wonderful diary keeper with all sorts of detail about what he purchased in order to to go there, and the names of the domains that the people that he treated came from, the equipment that he asked for, and the equipment that he received, and uh, just wonderful detail in this diary. And I became interested in the doctors who were participating in the war. And as I suggested at the the beginning of the paper that I gave, we tend to gloss over the violence of the Meiji Restoration, the Boshin War. And comparatively speaking, scholars have noted that the, the Meiji Restoration, comparatively, was fairly bloodless in terms of the numbers of casualties and so on. I have some figures here for you, if you're interested, compared to the um, French Revolution, or possibly tens of millions in the Russian or Chinese revolutions, it's estimated that in the Bosnian Civil War, even a high estimate might be around 30,000 deaths. So comparatively, perhaps we are looking at a smaller number of casualties. But for the people who are on the ground, certainly from reading this diary, you know, there's people coming in, all the time. They've got horrendous injuries. And these were new kinds of injuries caused by new weapons of war. And so they needed new kinds of treatments and systems to cope with those kinds of injuries.
0: And that's a great point about looking at battlefield medicine as a reminder that there was quite a bit of violence in the Boshin war. And you mentioned that it's mainly about doctors, but there was also some discussion then about the battlefield nurses, right?
1: That's right. And it's not really clear from what I've read so far who exactly those nurses were. There seems to have been both men and women. Uh, Actually, recruitment seems to have been a major problem throughout the diary, and there's a number of possible reasons for that. One might have been rivalry between the domains or not really having proper systems for working out who was going to pay them and how much they were going to be paid and this kind of thing. So it seems that there were a number of doctors, the doctor that I'm talking about, his name is Seki Kansai, and he went to the Tohoku area and he took a number of his own disciples with him and they went there and then they recruited locally as well and it's not really clear whether these people were paid or whether they were expected to volunteer their services. And then there were local nurses as well, who were some male and some female. And they seem to have done mostly menial tasks, but I'm sure that they must have received some kind of education as well when they were learning how to treat these wounds.
0: I'm curious what kind of battlefield medicine was being practiced. I mean, when we think of at that time, the American Civil War comes to mind where it just seems like just amputate everything. So <laughs> I'm wondering what, what was the level of medical knowledge and medical practice on the battlefields of the Bolshevik War?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. And perhaps my first impression of this came from reading the diaries of people like William Willis, who was also involved in, in treating the wounded in the Bolshevik War. He was a European doctor. He wrote about this and said that the Japanese doctors were not very prepared to treat gunshot wounds and certainly that doesn't seem to have been the case for the doctors that I've been looking at. They were removing bullets. They were also doing a certain amount of amputation as well. Willis suggests that he was doing a bit of amputation and that he was teaching people to use uh, splints to immobilize injuries and this also seems to have been something new. I haven't come across it in the diary that I've been looking at, so it's possible that was a new technique that was being taught. Yes, certainly there was quite a lot of amputation going on and that seems to have been successful in many cases. But often the approach was to uh, try to send people away from the battlefield back to the major hospitals in Edo, and Yokohama, where they would have access to doctors and more equipment there.
0: In your research more broadly, you've looked at the introduction of Western medical practice to Japan in the 19th century. Can you put the Boshin War and the battlefield medicine during the Boshin War into that context?
1: Well, I've been working on a number of doctors. Uh, I started out, my my career started with looking at the first half of the 19th century, and I was interested in uh, doctors who were learning about Western medicine, even in the the countryside, rural areas of Japan, studying Dutch. And I found this a fascinating thing. And uh, so I suppose as the years have gone by, I've expanded my horizons to look closer to the the end of the 19th century. And what I'm currently working on is, and is a collective biography of a number of doctors who lived through the transition to the Meiji period. And in the historiography so far, particularly in the Japanese historiography I've noted, it the, the, the doctors who were studying Western medicine, rangakusa, <laughs> we, can, we might call them. They're often seen as the heroes of this process who, despite quite severe re- restrictions on their activities, managed to learn Dutch and they managed to recognize the value of this. And then they implemented the modern Japanese medical system based on a Western model and therefore they led the way for this wonderful modernization of Japanese society. So there is a certain uh, glorification of these doctors and yeah, they're seen as medical heroes. And in thinking about this, that the doctors that I've been interested have been not so much heroes, but more ordinary kinds of doctors. And in thinking about this, it's interesting to think about the, the continuities. It's not like... These doctors kind of woke up one morning after the restoration and found themselves modern. They actually lived through this experience. So I'm, I'm trying to think about, well, what did this mean in terms of their daily practice? What did it mean to require them to get licenses in Western medicine? And did the fact that they had learned this prior to the restoration actually uh, help them in this process? Or was the, the medicine that was introduced after the restoration something new? Several people have thought about this this gap between the, the rangaku of the, the late Edo period and the modern, more biological version of Western medicine, which was just coming in at the same time as uh, the restoration was taking place. And they've noted this gap. And perhaps the people that I'm looking. At were representative of that gap, but many of them seem to have experienced difficulty in making this transition to the Meiji period, perhaps because they they were trained in an earlier version of it. Some of them seem to have uh, personal <laughs> reasons for having difficulty. Uh, it, can, perhaps, can I just give you one example? There was a doctor by the name of Ishii Kendo, who was a Rangaku scholar, and initially he gained an appointment in the Ministry of Internal Affairs where they developed a medical bureau and he had a position in that but after a few years he and a number of doctors actually lost their positions and this was a time when a number of reforms were being taken out and so he he received a demotion (laughs) at this moment and then continued to practice as a private medical practitioner for the rest of his life. So yeah, we find these interesting examples of people who didn't quite become these heroes of of modernization.
0: So you were saying that this battlefield medicine is a good reminder of the violence of the Meiji Restoration and the violence of the Bolshin War. And as you were saying as well, it's also a reminder that there was quite a bit of innovation in in medical knowledge in Japan during the Tokugawa period, even before the Meiji Restoration. Could you talk about what does change in medicine after the Meiji Restoration? Or what impact does the Meiji Restoration have on medical practice in Japan then?
1: Well, it has a a huge impact, really, but it has an impact, I think, because of the decision taken at a high level to reject Chinese-based medicine going forward. And so there was a decision made to license all new practitioners of medicine. The Chinese doctors were allowed to continue practicing medicine, an ongoing basis, but all new doctors had to be trained in Western medicine, not Chinese. And so there was a phasing out of the traditional Kampo-style medicine. So this is a, a huge change. Now, whether this was actually a practical change in terms of what got better about medicine is a difficult question, because at this time, the things which perhaps you might suggest were most advanced in Western medicine were perhaps surgery, which might have been a reason why the Western surgeons were so highly regarded during the Bosing War. And the other one was the vaccination, Jennerian vaccination, which proved to be very effective against smallpox. So these two things were highly influential and they influenced these decisions to adopt Western medicine. But in terms of other forms of practical therapeutics it's debatable whether there actually was a difference between the two at this time and so what came later was more a systematization and then later on bacteriology and public health hygiene these things made more of a difference perhaps than you might see in terms of daily practice
0: And speaking of public health and and hygiene, my students always think it's funny when I read these documents from the late 1500s, you know, the Jesuits come in and and they recognize, you know, oh my gosh, these people bathe every day. They're so clean. (laughs) Even a city as big as Edo compared to London during the 17th and 18th centuries or late as the 19th century was actually much more hygienic. So, I mean, where, where does Japan fall? I mean, in terms of, let's say medical practice is, Japan that far behind, or are they right abreast with developments in the rest of the world? Well,
1: that's one of the interesting things, too, is that because developments in understanding teriology and germs and germ theory and these kind of things were taking place just at the moment when the Meiji transformation was taking place. So then, when doctors went overseas, after the major restoration took place many of them studied in in germany and so they were able to actually participate in these new medical transformations in in quite a dramatic kind of a way and so they they brought this uh, knowledge back with them and then they became very proactive in uh, introducing the germ theory and bacteriology into research institutes at Tokyo University and so on. So yes, I mean, they. if you want to think think about it in terms of catching up, and I'm not sure that that's the best way to think about it, but yes, they participated in this very quickly and pretty soon they were on an equal level to anyone else in the European world.
0: You were talking about how these Japanese physicians go study overseas, uh, Mori Olgai, for example, mm. a very famous one who goes to Germany. Uh, but there's also a tie not only to Germany, but also to the Netherlands, I understand you've written about, and particularly regarding psychiatric practice.
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's not really a huge area of expertise of mine, but I was looking at one of Japan's first journals of medicine. And in this, the doctors were making translations of quite recent, actually, journals, which had been published in the Netherlands. And they were choosing practical kinds of essays, which interested them. And one of them was on psychiatric Health and it was a translation of a, a case study of a particular woman who had become deranged, and the treatment that was offered her was um, a combination of gentle sort of drugs and uh, psychiatric therapy. And I thought this was really interesting that uh, Japanese doctors were were interested in this at the time. And uh, you know, one of the suggestions has been previously that Japanese doctors actually didn't have such a good understanding of the Dutch language. But certainly by the time we get to the mid-19th century, they were translating quite difficult materials into Japanese and they had quite a good understanding of these journal articles that were written.
0: And speaking also of these kind of German ties, you've also written quite a bit about Philip Franz von Siebold and the kind of network that he establishes and his role as, as being instrumental in introducing Western medicine to Japan.
1: Yeah, Siebold was a, a German doctor. He became a naturalized Dutch citizen and he came to Japan in the early 19th century. And in Japan, he's still very much a hero and there's a seaboard museum in Nagasaki where his story is told and many of his artifacts are still there. And I think that perhaps one of his greatest legacies was a network of students and students seem to have been attracted to seaboard. He was still quite a young man when he came to Japan, but he was the first Dutch physician at Nagasaki who had full medical degree rather than a military kind of training. And uh, so he was quite highly regarded and the students flocked from all over Japan to study with him. And there was this network created of students who were extremely loyal to him and one of his other legacies who i've written about was his daughter her, her name was Kusumoto Ine, and she herself also studied medicine and became one of japan's perhaps we might argue japan's first obstetrician trained in western medicine
0: and on the topic of female practitioners of medicine Uh, You've also written about women doctors in Japan, and and one in particular, Ogino Ginko.
1: Yes, uh, so Kusumoto Ine worked in the Edo period, and and I see her as Arangakusa, someone of the the late Edo period, who made an important first step into women in the, the medical world. Ogino Ginko, on the other hand, came a little later, and she trained in the Meiji period, and she became the first licensed female medical practitioner. Uh, Ine, I would argue, was a doctor, although there are some who suggest that she was only ever a midwife, but I think she was far more than that. And you can see that she was treating um, a number of different ailments and treating both men and women. Okay, Kinko, on the other hand, battled the Meiji bureaucracy to be allowed to sit medical examinations. And she became the first licensed practitioner. And she wrote a very interesting paper about why Japan needed to have female doctors. And her own personal experience was a major factor in her becoming a doctor because she had suffered a a sexually transmitted disease, which she obtained from her husband. And uh, she felt extremely embarrassed to have to undergo treatment for this by male doctors. And so she herself decided to become one.
0: And she wrote this in 1893, is that correct?
1: Yes, 1893.
0: That's remarkable, considering you know, there, there's other kind of petition activities in, in the People's and Popular Rights Movement going on. You, you mentioned that she was the first female physician. How common was it for women to become practitioners of medicine at this time?
1: Well, it certainly wasn't common, but thanks to Ogino Ginko, it did become possible. And there was a, a stream of women who, who did become medical Practitioners. And yes, later there was a, a physician whose name was uh, Yoshioka Yayoi, and she uh, actually set up a school for women doctors. So for a while they were able to study alongside men, but according to some of their memoirs, they found this quite difficult because they were poorly treated by the male physicians. And so Yoshioka Yayoi decided to set up her own school of medicine, and that became, I think, Tokyo. Joshi Iga Daigaku today, Tokyo Women's Medical University.
0: I mean, I was wondering where the female physicians were getting trained because at this time, women weren't even allowed into the imperial universities, right?
1: That's right, yeah. So I think Ogino Ginko uh, had quite a struggle and she herself was the daughter of a, a physician. And so you know she must have had that kind of influence as well and uh, she used a combination of private study and then she was able to enter one particular school which had a, a sympathetic principal and was able to study alongside the male students for a while and because at that time there were two ways of becoming a physician one was to graduate from a recognized medical school and the other was to sit medical examinations, and so the path that she had to take was to uh, to sit the medical examination. And there was an interesting story about this that she she went to seek the support of Ishii Tadanori, and she went to him and argued that well, actually there there is nothing in the regulations to say that women can't sit the medical examinations, and so that she was able to to push it through with his support.
0: mentioned some question about whether or not this one woman was a doctor or a midwife and in the Meiji period. I mean, you can imagine there were women who, especially in local areas, were performing as midwives, maybe as types of shamanist healers. Uh, so was there a kind of, with the adoption of Western style medicine, was there any kind of conflict between Western medicine and more traditional practices of medicine?
1: Yes, there was. And certainly one of the unexplored areas, I think, in all of this is, is to look at women in medical families. And I think that they were probably doing all kinds of work behind the scenes, but we don't really know exactly what it was that they were doing in medical families in preparing medicines and these kinds of things. As far as the the midwives' go yes there was quite a conflict between women who trained in the new system they became new midwives and they had bicycles and you know shiny sets of e- equipment and many of them were actually young women Whereas uh, traditional midwives tended to be older women who had lots of experience. And so, yes, for a little while, there was quite a lot of rivalry between the two groups and also a certain reluctance on the part of women who were giving birth to uh, put (laughs) themselves in the hands of uh, a young woman who might have. A certificate and equipment, but I wasn't really seen to have the sort of experience that you would expect to have from a midwife.
0: Going back to the the Boshin War and the battlefield medicine on the Boshin War, we were saying that it's indicative of how there was already understandings of of Western medical practices. Do we see that the Boshin War and that experience, is this advancing medicine in Japan in some ways?
1: I think uh, it was certainly a factor in the decision to adopt Western medicine. And certainly, Willis, who participated so uh, enthusiastically in the treating of patients, he was one of those who was invited to take teaching position in the medical schools of the Meiji period. But again, there were some interesting rivalries happening there. Some of the Japanese doctors had decided, taking advice from Dutch doctors in Japan and from their own understanding, that uh, many of the works which they had been reading were German works rather than English ones. So there was a rivalry among the doctors in Japan, those who supported Willis because he had made such a wonderful contribution to saving people in the war and those who felt that actually Germany had the most advanced form of medicine and so this should be the way for Japan to go forward and in the end it was the German model that was used and uh, Willis was offered a, a sort of a compromise position but for a while there it was it was touch and go.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. About so often, we when we think of the Meiji period, it's always about these Oyatoi Gaikokujin who are coming mm. in, and these foreign advisors coming in, getting hired at the imperial universities to teach these new technologies. But as you're saying, there Western medicine had already been kind of trickling in and being practiced, and and maybe just after the Meiji Restoration, it's accelerated in some way. And
1: yes, accelerated in many ways. And as I mentioned before, Chinese style medicine was really sidelined despite the fact that most of the practicing physicians were practicing traditional Chinese style medicine and any of those who were practicing what they called Dutch medicine were including many elements of uh, traditional Chinese medicine as well so we have to recognize that as well.
0: I wonder if, uh, you know, when we talk about these foreign advisors who come over and and particularly those advisors who come over for architecture, that when they come over to Japan, they they almost get more fascinated by Japanese styles of architecture or, or Japanese aesthetics. Do we see the same with these Western physicians who come over? Do they start researching Chinese medicine, for example, and becoming more fascinated with those things?
1: There was an element of of that, particularly with some of the earlier doctors such as Siebold. He actually had his students prepare essays in Dutch about all kinds of of topics, the growing of tea, whaling, and all kinds of topics. So he was certainly interested in Japanese practices. In the Meiji period, of course, they became very interested in thermal springs, which were a huge part of healing uh, in the Edo period. And so they went around measuring the mineral content of hot springs and and these kind of things and and writing about this in their writings. Yeah, so there was an element of that, but I'm not sure that Chinese medical thought as such became of such interest. There might have been an interest in acupuncture.
0: So they, they didn't come over and say, oh, no, they the, the, these Asians have it all figured no, out. No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> they,
1: like yeah, they tended to be rather dismissive of uh, Japanese medical practices on the whole.
0: And, and the the diaries that you were mentioning before about the doctors of, in the Bolshevik War, so dismissing the practices of these doctors might be indicative of that.
1: Yes, I think so. And, you know, uh, comparing the two accounts, I've, I've found that, what Willis suggested didn't really hold true for the doctors that I was looking at. But at the same time, if as Seki was doing in Tōhoku, if he was cr- recruiting local people to to take part because they they didn't have enough people on hand. You can imagine that you know they might they might well recruit people who didn't have a terribly good understanding of Western <laughs> surgical techniques, even though the people leading those military hospitals might have had quite a good understanding. Uh, and so Willis taught about at uh, Wrote about how he was teaching these doctors what to do, and that they you know, certainly caught on to it very well. But you know, he he was the one who had to teach them.
0: So th- these people who are recruited to perform battlefield medicine, what happens to them afterwards? Do they go back to their villages and and become local physicians, for example?
1: Some of them were local physicians in the first place, and we actually find one interesting example in the diary I was looking at of a local physician who wrote to Seki and said, hey, can I come and study with you at the military hospital? And I think that was only for a short period of time. And then he would have gone back to his his regular duties. I don't have uh, any figures about the number of doctors who might have gone on to continue in, in this area, unfortunately, but it would be an interesting thing to look into.
0: Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.